This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Feeling stuck in your job? Bank of America's The Academy for Consumer and Small Business helps you develop a long-term career path. Through peer mentorship, immersive programs, and a variety of clear and distinct paths, you can reach the next level in your career. Take your first step towards a long-term career path at careers.bankofamerica.com. Kick-Ass News is brought to you by Capella University. Are you considering a doctorate to help you lead at the top of your field and contribute to your profession in more meaningful ways? Capella University can help. With flexible online degree programs and scholarship opportunities for select programs, Capella can help you support your goals from beginning to end. Learn more at capella.edu slash kick. And now, on with the show. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. If you've ever seen Steven Spielberg's Oscar-nominated film Catch Me If You Can, then you know the story of Frank Abagnale. Before he reached his 19th birthday, Abagnale successfully performed cons worth millions of dollars. He became one of the most notorious imposters, claiming to have assumed no more than eight identities, including a pilot, a physician, a lawyer, and a U.S. Bureau of Prisons agent. Posing as a pilot for Pan Am, he flew more than a million miles on the airline's dime and cashed over $2.8 million in counterfeit Pan Am checks. His cons eventually caught up to him, and after a few years in prison, he came over to the good guys, helping the FBI detect fraudulent checks and catch con artists. Today, he continues to lecture at the FBI Academy and field offices and is an expert in fraud, forgery, and cybersecurity who consults for Fortune 500 companies, financial institutions, and law enforcement. Now he wants to protect you from fraud with his new book, Scam Me If You Can, Simple Strategies to Outsmart Today's Ripoff Artists. And today, Frank Abagnale joins me on the podcast to discuss his early life of crime, how he turned it all around, and how he's now helping to protect people from scammers. He recalls how wearing the uniform of a pilot or a doctor made conning easier by playing on people's trust of authority. He reveals what kind of personalities were most susceptible to his schemes, and he warns that technology has made it much, much easier for crooks to pull off the same cons he got away with in the 1960s. He discusses which demographics are most vulnerable to fraud and says it actually has nothing to do with how smart you are. We talk about a range of specific scams going around, from those spam emails you get from a Nigerian prince to automated phone calls purporting to be the IRS. He also goes into how con artists are adapting to the Internet of Things and details a few specific cons that use crowdfunding sites, dating apps, and even ancestry companies to rip you off. Plus, Frank reveals why he doesn't own a debit card and why now he wants Americans to do away with passwords once and for all. Coming up with Frank Abagnale in just a moment. Frank Abagnale is a former con artist who wrote the book on scams and cons. In fact, he wrote several of them, including The Art of the Steel, Stealing Your Life, and Catch Me If You Can, which was later turned into a movie starring Leonardo DiCaprio. 
Today, Frank Abagnale is one of the world's most respected authorities on the subjects of fraud, forgery, and cybersecurity, lecturing at the FBI's academy and field offices, and consulting with major corporate clients such as AARP, Experian, Intuit, and LexisNexis. Indeed, more than 14,000 financial institutions, corporations, and law enforcement agencies use his fraud prevention programs, and now he wants to teach you how to prevent fraud in your own life in a new book titled Scam Me If You Can, Simple Strategies to Outsmart Today's Ripoff Artists. Frank Abagnale, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, Frank, many people listening know your story from the movie Catch Me If You Can. You were that young boy jet-setting around the world, passing fake checks and posing as pilots, doctors, and professors. And I have to say, when I watched that film, the thing that I wondered is, how many of your crimes were premeditated versus just crimes of opportunity? Were there times when you were almost surprised at how trusting people were and how easy it was? You are absolutely 100% correct. They were all crimes of opportunity. None of it was premeditated. You know, uh, I started out writing bad checks, but I would walk in the bank and have to try to convince the bank officer to cash a check for me. And then one day I happened to be walking down the street in New York and saw an airline crew come out of a hotel. And I thought to myself, boy, if I could get one of those uniforms. (laughs) And then I walked in the bank and supposedly was an airline pilot. I bet they'd cash my check without question. And sure enough, I got the uniform, I went to the banks, and it was like night and day, never had any problem, nobody ever said no. They cashed a check and I quickly learned the power of that uniform. And that was the rest of everything I did. I was just an adolescent who had a a sign for opportunities and when things would come up, I was smart enough to take advantage of them. Yeah, it's funny how if you dress like a doctor in scrubs, people are going to trust that you know your way around the OR or if you have a Pan Am uniform, they're just going to assume that you must be a real pilot. How much of your success back then and the success of cons in general, even today, rely on our respect and trust for authority figures? Absolutely. Uh, And the same way that we see some of these elaborate scams like Anna Delvey here in New York, who Mm -hmm. was a young woman who had no money but came to New York, made her way into the socialite scene, started meeting very important people, told them a lot of stories that she was a very wealthy heir from Europe and met one person who had a lot of influence and they introduced her to another person. Then she met several other people. And before you know it, Everyone believed that she was this real wealthy individual, and she was able to eventually scam people out of a lot of money. So it's also the fact of the first impression, how you look, etc. And the difference today is, you know, con men and confidence women years ago had to act one-on-one. They had to be in front of the person. So there was some emotion involved. They had to speak well, look well-dressed, to have a good vocabulary. And, of course, there was always a little bit of compassion because it's one human being to another. Mm -hmm. And maybe the con man said, I'm not going to take this man for all his money. I'm just going to take a little bit of his money. (laughs) Today, you're dealing with a con man who's sitting in his pajamas with a cup of coffee on a laptop in his kitchen in Moscow. They're thousands of miles away. They don't see you. You don't see them. And, of course, there is no compassion. There's no emotion. And, unfortunately, (laughs) they'll take you for every penny you have. So then let me ask you this. Has technology made it harder or easier for a crook to do what you did back in the 60s? 4,000 times easier to do today. If we give you an example, for me to actually create checks years ago, I had to buy 
uh, a Heidelberg press or use a Heidelberg press. And I had to learn how to operate that press. There were color separations. There were negatives. There were plates. There were chemicals to make plates. Steven Spielberg did a good job of getting one of the presses and showing that I built scaffolding so I could get at the top of the press and operate the press by myself. Uh, today, one would just open a laptop, look out the window, see an ad for a big Fortune 500 company, design a check on the screen and pull up a form, then put that company's logo on the check, put the bank's logo on the check, and in 15 minutes make a beautiful uh, check and then go down to office supply store, buy some check paper with a watermark on it, 8.5 by 11, put it in your inkjet printer, and start printing out checks. And we... And we also live in a too-much-information world. So 50 years ago, you might have said, wow, Frank, these checks you printed are amazing. They're beautiful. They're four-color. They're real detailed. But how do you know where this company banks? I have no idea. I'm just making up a bank's name. Well, how do you know their account number? I don't know. I'm I'm just using a bunch of numbers. Well, how do you know who the authorized signer is? I have no idea. I'm just using a name. Today, uh, we live in a too much information world. So if I call that company and ask to speak to someone in accounts receivables and tell them I want to pay an invoice and I'm getting ready to wire them the money, they tell me where they bank, on what street, and what city, their account <laughs> number, their routing number into their account. If I ask for a copy of their annual report, they'll send it to me. But on page three is a signature of the chairman of the board, the CEO, the CFO, the treasurer, the controller. White glossy paper, black ink, camera-ready art. You scan it, you digitize it, you put it on the check. So there's no question that technology has made what I did much, much easier today. That's just fascinating to me because I would think that technology makes it easier to detect fraud because it's not like the old days when some kind of Harold Hill-type grifter could just wander into a small town with a phony letter of reference and bilk people out of their money. Now, it seems to me that everything is verifiable on the Internet. We can do background checks. We can get references. We have review sites. Isn't it stronger now? It's not really it's not really so much stronger because it's so easy to manipulate so many of those things. And then on top of that, you have everything that you just said is what should be done, but nobody does it. It's just like all of the technology and all the breaches we see occur. Every breach occurs because somebody in that company did something they weren't supposed to do or somebody in that company failed to do something they were supposed to do. So in the case of Equifax, they didn't update their system, they didn't fix their security patches, and the hacker got in. All hackers do is look for open doors. It's people who make mistakes that let them in. And what you said is exactly what someone should do before they part with money or part with information or verify something to be correct. But people are lazy. People automatically believe that what they say is true, and they don't want to spend the time and energy to to verify whether that information is accurate or not. Now, one reason that we're writing fewer checks today is because of ATMs and debit cards, of course. But you reveal in the book that you do not own nor do you use a debit card. Why not? Isn't that safer than cash or check? No, actually, the safest form of payment that exists on the face of the earth, and I've written about this for many years in books and articles, is a credit card. Credit card, not credit debit card, but credit card, Visa, MasterCard, American Express, Discover card. 
Every day of my life, I spend the credit card company's money. I don't spend one dime of my money. My money sits in a money market account, earns interest. Nobody knows where the money is. It's not exposed to anyone. I go to the dry cleaner. I give them my car. I go to the airport. I give them my card. And I would do everything to protect my number. But if someone gets my number tomorrow and charges $1 million on my credit card, by federal law, I have zero liability. I have no liability. If I purchase something online and they don't deliver it, the credit card company makes it good. If I buy something online, they deliver it broken but refuse to take it back, the credit card company makes it good. When I pay the credit card bill in full or minimum due, my credit score goes up. So I continue each month to build credit and my credit score. When I use a debit card, every time I take it out of my pocket, I'm exposing the money in my account. And I, of course, could use that debit card 20 times a day for 20 years, and I won't raise my credit score one iota. And, of course, when we look at all the breaches that have occurred in the retail environment, in the post-investigation of those breaches, when they typically ask what happened, someone says, well, you know, I used my Visa card, so I don't know. They canceled the card the next day, and two days later, they sent me a new card. That was the last I heard about it. Oh, no, I used my debit card off my credit union and they actually took about $3,000 out of my bank account, and it took me about three months to get it back Why they said they were investigating it. So even when I go to an ATM machine, I only use an ATM card, not an ATM debit card, oh, okay. not an ATM card with a Visa or a MasterCard logo, just my card because then I'm governed by the same laws as my credit card. Interesting. Okay. So that makes sense. So by using a credit card, you're actually kind of doing yourself a favor and taking some of the burden of protecting yourself off of your shoulders and putting it on someone else. Right. You're really yeah. actually saying if they're going to steal somebody's money, let them steal the credit card company's <laughs> money, not my money. Yeah. And in addition to being anti-debit card, you say that you're also anti-password. I mean, all passwords that we use to access our email, our Amazon account, social media... These are passwords that I assumed are supposed to be there for our security and to prevent fraud. You say that we should do away with them altogether, huh? Yes. I've written many years ago that passwords are for tree houses. <laughs> you know, passwords, uh, passwords were invented in 1964. I was 16 years old. I didn't even begin to do the things I did. Today, I'm 71 years old, and we're still using passwords. And we know that 87% of malware, ransomware, breaches all occur because of passwords. So we're long past due getting rid of passwords. They're complicated. They're hard to remember. They make it easier for criminals to access our accounts. So I have finally now started to see in the last few years some really good new technology that identifies you by your telephone. And, you're, and does not use passwords. So a lot of universities have dropped passwords. I know a lot of big insurance companies have, and a lot of major banks are getting away from passwords. And I think in the next two or three years, uh, you won't see passwords around anymore. And that's long, long overdue, should have been really? done long time ago. Uh, what about if I, say, make up a really long and complex password? I use numbers, caps, punctuation, or, or maybe even use one of those randomly generated passwords. That's not good enough, you don't think? No, because, you know, what happens is most of these technologies don't use anti-replay. So mm -hmm. it's kind of like when you say I take my i10 phone and I 
take a picture and I put my picture on there so that when I open or unlock my phone, I have to have my image up there, my biometrics. Well, when you took that picture, your biometrics became a long stream of numbers and letters. But if I capture those numbers and letters and I replay them, then I'm you. And that's the problem with biometrics. So in developing the technology for no passwords, the first thing they had to do was develop anti-replay, which they did. They patented it. And then they developed the ability to be able to identify yourself by, by your phone. There's a great ad on TV. I've seen it several times where Serena Williams is running through the marketplace. She just has her phone in her hand. She's in a jogging outfit. She sees a necklace she'd like to buy at the market, so she walks over to her ATM. She presses the app on her phone. She gets the money. She had no card, no password, and off she goes. It's wow. an advertising for a major bank. <laughs> but that's the kind of technology you're starting to see, that when you call the call center at your bank, they're not going to ask you a lot of security questions. They're just going to ask you to press the app on your phone and identify yourself through your phone. Interesting. Now, you mentioned malware a moment ago. I feel like I'm constantly under assault every day. Right. What devices are most susceptible to malware? Uh, you know, things like your cell phone, uh, many times your PC at home, and of course, there are many scams. I found in writing this book, one thing that was surprising to me is that millennials fall for more scams than seniors do, but seniors wow. lose more money because they <laughs> have more money. And really? one of the biggest scams, of course, is you're on your computer, a pop-up comes up, says, this is Microsoft, you have malware on your computer, mm -hmm. please call this 800 number. Uh, yeah. And you call the number and they tell you they can fix it, but they need a credit card number and there's a fee involved. And I can't tell you how many people fall for that wow. scam. And you say in Scam Me If You Can that you knew when you were first doing cons as a young man that certain people were more apt to come under your spell than others. What kind of people made for easy marks? Um, you know, typically people who uh, just automatically believed you, they didn't question anything, they just thought that you were that who you say you were, mm -hmm. they didn't really have any kind of imagination that you couldn't be telling them, you could not, maybe not telling them the truth. Um, there are a lot of people, you know, people, thank God, are basically honest. And, and because they're honest, they don't have a deceptive mind. So when the telephone rings and the caller ID says it's the IRS or it's the police department or it's the U.S. government or Medicare, they assume automatically, oh, that's who it is, because no one has told them that caller ID is easily manipulated and I can make it say whatever I want it to say. Hmm. So I, what I did in writing this book, and by the way, I, I wrote this book at the request of AARP, but I wanted to include millennials, I wanted to include investment people in writing the book, and I gave all of the money for the book, the royalties and the advance back to AARP so that they could fight crimes against the elderly. But in writing the book, uh, it was just amazing to me, all of these scams, basically, no matter how sophisticated or how amateur, came down to two red flags. And the red flags were very simple. At some point, I'm going to ask you for money, and then I'm going to ask you to give me this money immediately. Give me a credit card over the phone, go down to Walmart, get me a green dot card, call me right back with the number on the back, wire me the money, give me your checking account number. Has to be done right now, this moment. That was a huge red flag. And the other one was, at some point, I'm going to ask you for information. So I might call. The caller ID says it's your bank. You assume it is. You pick up the phone. Well, we detected some suspicious activity on your credit card, wanted to call you. 
uh, and they'll talk for a little bit, and then they finally say, now, to make sure you have your card in your possession, can you read me the three numbers on the back of your credit card? The minute they start asking you for information, social security numbers, dates of birth, bank account numbers, that's the other red flag. And in the book, you refer to how con artists, quote unquote, get victims under the ether. Are these tricks that you just described some of the tactics that they use? And what does that mean, getting someone under the ether? Getting you really convinced that they're the real person and that everything they're telling you is true. You know, we have seen romance scams almost double now. And you have people who basically meet you uh, on line. They sound like very nice people. So you're kind of lonely. So you start writing back online to them and they give you a story about who they are and where they're from. And all of a sudden, this goes on maybe for five, six months. Then they start on the telephone and you're visiting with them and having conversations with them on the phone. And now you're really kind of gotten attached to that person. You're under their ether. There's almost a little bit of romance involved. And then one day you say, so look, Bob, um, if you live just a couple of states away from me, how come you don't come and visit me? Well, I would, but I have to have this operation. And it's $30,000, and I don't have the money. And um, if I don't get the operation, I don't even know that I'm going to make it. Well, you know what? I could I, I could loan you that money. And that's that red flag. And that's where you lose your money. You never met that person. You really don't know that person. Uh, you only met them online. You have to be a little more careful today. Anytime you're going to part with your money or you're going to part with information, you need to know who is on the other end. And I'm curious, is there any data on who's more susceptible to these romance scams, men or women? Uh, mainly women. And what happens a lot of times now is you see these uh, people who go on Facebook and there's a picture of a young Marine, really good-looking guy, well-decorated. He's in his uniform, looks really sharp in that close-up photo. They snatch that photo and then they email that photo out to thousands of people and they claim that they're that person. And of course, young women come on and start to say, hi, my name's Barbara. I saw you on uh, on your email and uh, like to get to know you, meet you. And they'd start to befriend those people, believing that that's the guy in the picture, mm -hmm. when in reali reality, it could be an 80-year-old guy. And eventually, again, they might say, I'm in Afghanistan, and I was wondering if you could uh, send me over some money for some uh, canteen stuff, or you could give me a debit card or something so I could access some money. Uh, and it's all just part part of that part of that scam. Again, mm. you really don't know that's the person. All you've seen is a picture. They told you they're that person, but you really don't know that. And that relationship's fine unless I start to ask you for money or I start to ask you for personal information then it becomes a totally different relationship. Uh, let me ask you this. There's such a proliferation of dating apps now from Tinder and Match.com to Bumble. Is any one dating app any better than the others in terms of verifying the identity of users? I really don't think so, and I get very concerned about apps. As you know, uh, the Face app came out. 80 million Americans signed up for it. Right. They scrolled through the contract, didn't read it, put at the bottom and said, I agree, because it's free. Uh, it is a Russian bot, a Russian app, in which the Russians were simply trying to get data. And now they have information on 80 million Americans. They have their biometrics. 
they have their pictures, they have their information, and of course, they know how they look at 20, they know how they're going to look at 40. Um, that was a foolish mistake. So I went back to pull that contract, and when you read it, you see that it says it's irrevocable, they can use your picture in any way they want, they can track you, they can do all these different things that you just turned around and said, I agree, because it was free. So I think you have to be very careful about the type of apps you download and understand who you're doing business with. I wouldn't want to go just use a dating service because they have a free app or they have an app. I'd want to know, is this a real legitimate company? What are their references? How long have they been around? You know, as I remind people all the time, you can't rely on the police. You can't rely on the bank. You can't rely on the government. You have to be a little smarter today. You have to be a little wiser consumer today before you part with your money or your part with information. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Frank Abagnale when we come back in just a minute. If there's something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, BetterHelp Online Counseling can help. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, self-esteem, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And get help at your own time and at your own pace. Anything you share is confidential. And it's so convenient, you can schedule secure video or phone sessions, as well as chat and text with your therapist. If for some reason you're not happy with your counselor, though, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Our listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code KICK. So why not get started? Go to betterhelp.com kick. Then simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com kick. And now, back to the podcast. And I was surprised to learn in the book that apparently education doesn't really have a whole lot to do with it. In fact, you actually say that college-educated people are twice as likely to get scammed as those who don't have a college degree. Why is that? Yeah, you know, what's been amazing to me is I do a podcast out of Washington, D.C. every Wednesday for sponsored by AARP. And basically, we go to people who have been victimized that have written in. We send an investigator out to interview that person, document everything they said. We get them to get their voice on the radio and talk about what happened to them. And then we go back and talk about why this happened to Mr. Jones or Mrs. Jones and what they should have done so it wouldn't have occurred. But during this time, I've had two former FBI directors of the Bureau who are now in their 70s and 80s that have been victimized. I've had the chief editor of Time magazine, retired, but had been at Time for 35 years, had that had been victimized. So it, it has nothing to do whether you're brilliant or whether you're smart. It's whether that people come under that ether and people mm -hmm. convince them to do things they wouldn't normally do or they get too trusting and they don't use common sense to realize that it's probably a scam. So, you know, I have taught at the FBI Academy for 43 years, to four decades, two generations of FBI agents. 
I basically have always believed that education is the most powerful tool to fighting crime. So whether I'm teaching an FBI agent or I'm teaching a banker or I'm teaching a consumer, if I say to you, here's the scam, here's how it works, this is what they're going to say, this is what they're going to try and convince you of, this is what they're going to do, then when that scam comes, when that phone call, that email, that sweepstakes scam calls, you're going to say, oh, no, I already read about this. I know all about this. I'm not going to fall for that. And that's what I tried to do with this book is to look mm -hmm. at every possible scam from amateur scams to very, very sophisticated scams and say, this is how they work in very simple language. This is where the red flag is. And then I put a little test after each one to make sure that people go back and remember. And I hope they also use it as a reference tool for police, social workers that they can do it. I'm a big believer. I convinced ARP several years ago that we need to have a program to help educate bank tellers so that Mrs. Jones, who's 71 years old, comes in every week and gets $60 out of her savings, now all of a sudden comes in and asks for $6,000 in cash, that the teller's able to say, Mrs. Jones, has anybody called you and told you that you want a sweepstakes, you have to pay so much money, or did they tell you that you owe the IRS money? And sooner or later, they hit on it and they go, well, yes, that's exactly what happened. I got this call and I'm supposed to pay the 6000 No, ma'am, that's a scam. And I just wanted to make sure that you didn't get victimized by mm -hmm. someone. But again, it comes to educating the teller who helps educate the customer. And that bank brings great value to their customers because they've educated their tellers to do so. Well, then, Frank, I'm going to ask you to indulge me here and perhaps do what you do on your podcast, but with me, and admittedly, it may be where it gets really maddening for you. Um, <laughs> I want to run through a scenario with you that happened to me and ask you to tell me everything that I did wrong. Okay. A few months ago, someone hacked an old AOL account of mine that I never use, but it was still tied to a number of accounts, including my iTunes account which also, by the way, happened to have the same password. I hadn't enabled two-factor authentication on my iTunes account, but lo and behold, someone did it for me using a foreign phone number that isn't mine and that I have no idea what it could possibly be. On top of that, I didn't respond to Apple's fraud alert email within the required two weeks of the incident because I never check the AOL account again. <laughs> So now there is no way for me to recover my iTunes account and all of the apps and downloads that I've purchased over 10 years are now lost, possibly coming to like several thousand dollars. Tell me everything that I did wrong there. Well, uh, first of all, of course, uh, you should have uh, paid attention to any alerts from someone like Apple, Microsoft, or anyone who's sure. alerting you to suspicious activity <laughs> on your account. You made a mistake that a lot of people make. They use one password because it's convenient and they use it for everything. So the same password they use for iTunes or Amazon is the same password they use to get in uh, to their bank account. And many of these inactive internet accounts like AOL and some of those, those become targets for criminals that basically just like inactive bank accounts were years ago, uh, they became targets of people who embezzled from the bank or worked in the bank because they knew it was an inactive account. So uh, there were little things that you could have done uh, like that, but it doesn't mean they still wouldn't have taken you. The technology and the ability that people have today with some of the devices we have that are not very secure and the companies that supposedly store a lot of this data don't have a lot of security in place, just like Equifax didn't, uh, and people are easily be able to, to get in. 
So I think if you to basically make sure if you're using, and I want to eliminate passwords, but if you're using passwords, that you're using different passwords for different things and not the same password, and that you do pay attention to those alerts, whether they be from your bank on your checking account or your credit card or whether they be on your AOL account or they be on your iTunes account because those uh, those are made so that there is something suspicious that's going on and they're trying to alert you ahead of time. Well, I'm trying to learn and get better at this. I got to say, I did take your scam quotient quiz that you have in the book. Readers can find out how vulnerable they are to fraud by answering, I think it was about 19 or 20 questions. Yeah. I scored a 160. How did I fare against the average person? Uh, you did probably much better than those. Really? I try to always put those quizzes in my book when I wrote the Stealing Your Life that was about identity theft and asked the question, are you a victim? Could you be a victim for identity theft? And asked them to answer these questions and then scored them. I think it gives people an opportunity to see what they're doing wrong mm -hmm. and where they might not be doing what they're supposed yeah. to be doing. Uh, yes. Well, I want to ask you about some of the specific scams that you warn about in this book. One in particular is something that just about everyone has dealt with at some point or another, those ridiculous Nigerian email scams. Yeah. yeah. First of all, why why are they always from Nigeria? Is Nigeria just a nation of crooks or what? <laughs> uh, it very much is. And what oh. it is, is not. it is so bad that even if you were to go back in the old days to the bank directory, the international bank directory put out by the American Bankers Association, and you looked up a bank, and then you called that bank and spoke to an officer in that bank because you were trying to verify something, that officer many of the times was part of the scam. There are so huh. many scams out there. So years and years ago, when I used to teach Nigerian scams at the academy, the young agents would say to me, well, let me ask you this. If they send out 10,000 letters, that means they have to buy 10,000 stamps. So where are they getting the money to send these letters out? I said, no, all of the stamps on the letters are counterfeit. They're not oh. real. They counterfeited them. Huh. So it cost them nothing oh. to send it out. But they send out 10,000 letters. They're only looking for one-tenth of one percent to respond. The difference today, when the Internet came along, we can now send out 10 million emails. And once again, we're only looking for one-tenth of one percent to respond. So it's just a simpler way, a cheaper way of using technology to commit the same crime, but get to more people and get faster and quicker results. And the thing that I always wonder about those is, you know, who, who actually falls for these? Because they're always so over the top talking about some prince somewhere who has a lost fortune hit sitting in a bank or, you know, the grammar is always really horrible. Is it just a matter of it's kind of a self-selecting pool where if you're dumb enough to kind of not see the obvious scam, then those are the people that they're really trying to target. And, and if anything, yes, and it kind of weeds out yes, the smart people. Yes. And greed always plays into it. But, you know, uh, what, with the perfect scam, you can go to ARP.org and listen to all the different ones I've done or on my website at abignail.com and you can actually play and listen to these 30-minute podcasts. But it's unbelievable the, the people that have been told to go down to Home Depot and buy 25 gift certificates or gift cards with this and bring the money back and read them the numbers off the card. Uh, that, you know, they had their grandparents uh, scam, the sweepstakes scam, you won a sweepstakes. I love when they uh, call and say that they won a sweepstakes in Jamaica, and in order to get the money they won, 
they had to send down fifteen or eighteen hundred or twenty five hundred dollars to pay the tax before they could give them the money. <laughs> and I said, "Well, ma'am, did you enter a sweepstakes in Jamaica?" No. Well, then how could you have won the sweepstakes in Jamaica? It's just amazing to me the stuff that people do. And sometimes, yes, if they're dealing with elderly people, sometimes they're not thinking straight. They get very confused. It's very easy to manipulate them. But it's just a matter that people sometimes are a little greedy. And if they think they're going to get something, uh, they're not really paying close attention or they don't know what they should be looking for or that it really is a scam. Yeah, and another one that many of us have encountered is these automated phone calls purporting to be the IRS saying that you owe back taxes, and if you don't pay it over the phone, a warrant's going to be issued for your arrest. Does the IRS ever actually call and ask you to pay off a tax bill over the phone? No, no government agency places phone calls. As I explained to people about Medicare, for example, when you sign up for Medicare and you're 65 years old, uh, they fill out all these forms and you put all this information on there, your contact information, etc. Once Medicare files all that into their system, the first thing they do is delete your phone numbers. They don't want your phone numbers because they don't make calls. The IRS doesn't call anyone. But to give you an idea how criminals switch gears, the IRS scam is a perfect example. That got so much publicity people started to really realize, oh, when they call and say they're from the IRS, that's a scam. So they switched gears a little bit last year. They started sending you a letter, supposedly from the IRS, and it looks very authentic. Huh. It says United States Treasury on the envelope. It says on the right-hand corner where the stamp would be, postage and fees paid, United States government. You open it up, it's on the IRS letterhead. It has a reference number up in the right-hand corner you're supposed to refer to. Same scam, you owe back taxes, you need to call us immediately uh, at this toll-free number below. And people, you know, some people sit there and go, you know, I could owe back taxes or I wasn't really straight on my taxes last year. Maybe there <laughs> is something uh, that I did wrong or they're after me for something I owe. And they dial that 800 number. A very nice young lady in a boiler room answers, hi, it's Internal Revenue Service. Good morning. Yeah, I just received this letter. Uh, could you read me the reference number up at the top? Oh, yes, uh, it's TJ17653. Okay, I'm going to put you on to Agent Johnson. He'll be able to talk with you. And then they switch it to another table, and the guy picks up the phone and goes, Agent Johnson here. I'm calling you about some back taxes. And, of course, you have to pay right then. You can't mm -hmm. say, well, can I mail a check? Right. Uh, can I go get a cashier's check? No, no, no. you got to pay this moment, and that's that red flag. So whether it's wow. the letter, whether it's the call, the red flag's going to come into play. Wow. And now I want to get into some of these 21st century ripoffs that are using the Internet of Things to take advantage of people. You actually alert readers in the book to scams that involve ancestry sites and DNA testing sites. That industry has just grown so quickly over the past half decade. In fact, I just did two different ones myself over the past year. How are con artists using those? Well, first of all, in many ancestry sites, all the information you have to provide to them is information that criminals can use. So you mm. want to know where is that information going, right. who has the right to see that information. And it's the same way with these DNA tests and things like that. The question is reading that agreement, reading that contract. Are they saying that once they send you the results of that, are they sharing those results or they are able to sell those results to an insurance company, a marketing company? Or are they saying that once I send you the results, we destroy 
the results. We never allow anyone else to see them. Those are the questions, and that's where you have to make sure that you're dealing with a legitimate company that's doing the right the right thing. A lot of times we just sign up for those. And, and you know, a lot of those are marking. Remember years and years ago, you'd buy a washer and dryer, and you'd have to fill out the warranty card and attach to it in a perforated card. It said to fill out this postcard and it asked you, do you make between this and this much money? Uh, do you read these magazines? Are you a professional, a doctor, a laborer? Uh, all that information was the washing machine companies selling that data to marketing companies for money. The only difference today, it's so automated with the internet. And uh, again, we're still falling for the same things we should have never filled in and before or today. You also detail various charity scams. And I have to imagine that there's just been an explosion in these cons with the advent of crowdfunding sites like Kickstarter and GoFundMe. First of all, who polices those sites for fraud? They seem like easy targets the, to me. The only one that does and does a very good job of it is the state attorney general's office. Uh, I've had the opportunity over my career to work with all of the various state attorney generals, no matter what their uh, politics were. Uh, they have great consumer protection bureaus within the AG's office, and they work for you. The citizens voted them into office, and they have great information. So when I get something and it's a charity that sounds very reasonable to me and I think to myself, you know, this is something I'd like to give some money to, I call the attorney general's office and ask, is this a legitimate charity? And if it's not, they'll know about it. If it is, they'll know whether it's good or not. And you can go through like the Better Business Bureau, uh, but I find that the AG's office has much more accurate, much more thorough information. And if it's a bad charity, they want to know about it, and they may say, we right. don't know about that. Let me do a little investigation into that and get back to you before you send them any money. So it's a great resource to go to. But yes, there are a lot of easy GoFundMe scams out there. You don't really know that somebody was hurt. You don't really know the money's going to them. We know there have been many scams where they're just in collusion with other people, and they're out to get, get your money. So again... As I always say, before you part with your money or you part with information, please make sure you know where it's going mm -hmm. and stop and take a minute or two to verify. Yeah, but the problem is, I guess, that a lot of these people who are asking for money on these crowdfunding sites probably aren't registered one way or another with the AG's office. Right. So, so how do you go about vetting those? Well, then that's where I don't, you know, I'm not going to give money to something that I can't personally verify to be something okay. that's real, something I know that actually happened or somebody that actually needs the money. Um, just because someone has emailed me or told me a story or, or something that happened, if I don't know that to be true, and even when I know it's a true incident, I need to know that the money I'm giving to that fund is actually going to that person, actually being used for what they say it is. Listen, there are a lot of, lot of legitimate, very good charities out there where most of the money goes to help people. Uh, if you want to donate money, there are lots of places you can donate money to and be assured that it's going to be used correct and falling for some scam. In the first chapter of Scam Me, if you can, you say that you wrote this book now because you're alarmed at the pace with which scams and scammers are advancing. Looking ahead to over the next decade or so, what do you worry about most? What keeps me up most at night is that Right now, we have, you know, right now, so-called cybercrime is all about stealing money or stealing data. And data, of course, is money. So it's a financial crime. 
What I'm concerned about, it's very obvious to me that within the next several years, these crimes are going to turn very black. Uh, we have the power now, right now as you and I speak, to shut someone's pacemaker off. We can speed it up or any bodily device they have on them operated by a chip. But we have to be within 35 feet of the victim. So I have to walk by you on the sidewalk. I have to get close to you to speed up that pacemaker, shut that pacemaker off. We have the ability now on the interstate for law enforcement to pull over a vehicle because we know that a typical car has about 240 computer components in it, which means that we can shut the power windows off, we can lock the car doors, we can shut the engine down, turn on the airbag. But again, we are right now with today's technology restricted to 35 feet. So the question is, five nows from now, is that 350 miles, 3,500 miles? Uh, what we'll be able to do with that technology five years from now. So when you start telling me about autonomous cars, I've got to worry about is someone going to be able to take control of that car, lock the passenger in the car, and deliver the passenger to where they want to deliver them? Or is somebody going to ultimately crash the car for the purpose of causing that person bodily harm, whether they're in this country or they're somewhere else? So I think there's a lot of things to be worried about along those lines, along with taking over the electrical grid, shutting down banking systems and other things. I think we're just at the infancy of what really cyber crimes are all about and attacks are really all about. Scary stuff. A lot to worry about. It is scary. Yeah. Well, it where is. can people go to learn more about AARP's Fraud Watch Network? Uh, you just go to ARP and type in Fraud Watch Network. One of the things that we did in developing this Fraud Watch Network is we have a toll-free number you can call through AARP, and you'll find it on their website at the Fraud Watch Network's desk, which is in Denver, Colorado, that's staffed by volunteers, but very educated volunteers who know a lot about all these scams and cons. You do not, I emphasize, you do not have to be an AARP member. You can be 18 years old and call them, and ask them, is this charity okay? Or I think I've already been scammed. What do I do to try to get my money back? Who do I notify? Is this a scam? Someone sent me this email. Is this real or is this part of a scam? Uh, they can answer all those questions for you. ARP does put on a lot of video training tapes that they have available online. And on my website, it's just abignail.com. I sell no products. I provide no services. It is strictly an educational site. And you can go there and learn about cybercrime. You can learn about how do you protect yourself from identity theft. You can listen to the podcast on the perfect scam. Or even if you're just more on the commercial side, you want to know how to spot a fraudulent check, how to detect a counterfeit bill or a short change artist. All of that's on my website. Again, I believe very strongly that educating people is the prime way to keep people safe. Well, Frank, you've armed us with some very good information here. And again, the book is called Scam Me If You Can, Simple Strategies to Outsmart Today's Rip-Off Artists. Frank Abagnale, thanks for talking with me. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Frank Abagnale for coming on the show. Order his new book, Scam Me If You Can, Simple Strategies to Outsmart Today's Rip-Off Artists on Amazon, Audible, or wherever books are sold. Whatever struggles you're facing, from depression and anxiety to trauma and grief, BetterHelp can connect you with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient, you can schedule secure video or phone sessions as well as chat and text with your therapist. 
and anything you share is completely confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Our listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code KICK. So why not get started? Simply go to betterhelp.com KICK and fill out a questionnaire to get matched with a counselor you'll love today. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and rate and review us while you're there. Five-star ratings and detailed reviews are one of the best ways for new listeners to discover the show. You can also follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at KickAssNewsPod and recommend us to your friends on your social media. For more fun stuff, visit KickAssNews.com and I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at KickAssNews.com. For now, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kickass News.